You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey friends, welcome back, or welcome for the first time, I don't know your life, to the Speaking in Church podcast. I'm Josie. And I'm Spencer. And this week we have Elle Dowd. She is a bi-furious recent graduate of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago and a candidate for ordinated, ordained ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Elle has pieces of her heart in Sierra Leone, where her two children were born, and in St. Louis, where she learned from the radical queer Black leadership during the Ferguson Uprising. She was formerly a co-conspirator with the movement to decolonize Lutheranism and is currently serves as a board member of the Euro Descent Lutheran Association for Radical Justice, does community organizing in her city as a board member of Seoul, serves on the clergy advocacy board for Planned Parenthood, writes regularly as part of the vision team for the Disrupt Worship Project and facilitates workshops in both secular conferences and Christian conferences. She is publishing a book with Broadleaf Baptized in Tears about her conversion from a white moderate to an abolitionist, which is released this week on the 10th and is available now. Cool. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Um, Mostly because these are all things... So we're very all about here at yeah. <laughs> We're a very radical podcast. Um, yes. cool. Also didn't know about Planned Parenthood. I freaking love that. So yes. praise God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just got on the board for the clergy advocacy board for Planned Parenthood this year. So I'm really excited about it. That sounds cool like clergy advocacy wow yeah well it's you know a lot of like just like the anti-choice folks clothe Mm. their reasons and really religious language so it's helpful to have a group of folks from across traditions to be able to speak to why we think abortion is a right and abortion is health care and why god cares about people having access to the services that they need with dignity yes oh I love that. <laughs> We're already obsessed, as you can tell. Well, anyways, Elle, um, tell us, this is a portion of the podcast where we ask our guest um, to tell us a little bit about their testimony. Um, you know, tell us about you, your, your journey to now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like, there's so many, you know, angles. I feel like I could go with this, but I will say you know, um, since I wrote this book, baptized in tear gas from white moderate to abolitionist, I'll kind of give the, the background for that, that kind of like portion of my testimony. So I grew up in a suburb of Des Moines, Iowa. It was very overwhelmingly white. I grew up in the church. I, I grew up in a Lutheran church and I always sort of thought that I cared about issues of justice, but a lot of it didn't really seem real to me. And I definitely wasn't dedicating my life to, to any real form of racial justice or, or putting my body on the line at all. A lot of these like ideas that I had about justice really lived in my head. And I, I realize now looking back the ways that growing up in the environment that I did and in the society that we live in, that I had really been indoctrinated into a lot of sort of narratives that support white supremacy, not like 
obvious overt, like Nazi clan stuff. But instead, what MLK calls the white moderate, right? In his letter, um, the MLK wrote letter from a Birmingham jail, he talks about how it's the white moderate that's the greater obstacle to justice than even like mm -hmm. the Ku Klux Klan member. Mm -hmm. And that was that was me, right? Like I was definitely the sort of person who was like, oh yeah, I believe in racial justice, but you know, can't people of color ask a little nice more nicely? And do people have to be so disruptive about it? Right. I was like very much in that space until I, um, there was a few different things that changed me. And this book baptized in tear gas is a lot about my own transformation, the way that God transformed me kind of like a conversion story. Uh, some seeds of that were that I, I began to do some reading, right. And I, I got, um, exposed to different viewpoints and people that way, but also that I became a mother to black children who, um, my daughters now they're teenagers. They're from Sierra Leone and West Africa. And that sort of took my experiences of white supremacy and faith and those intersections from something that was like purely like ideological or like a thought experiment into something that really was like very very visceral and embodied. And then I got a job in the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri in the Bishop's office in, uh, I began in 2014 and only a few months after I started white police officer, Darren Wilson shot and killed black unarmed teenager, Michael Brown. And the response in Ferguson from the community really ignited a movement and my participation in that uprising, being out there in the streets, being surrounded by these black activists, hearing their perspectives, seeing some of the state violence and experiencing it for myself firsthand really transformed me. And now I do a lot of community organizing and faith work around being a police and prison abolitionist, which means that I work for a future world without prisons and police. And all of that's very, very tied to my faith. So that's why when I think of like testimony, you know, the, the title is baptized in tear gas in my tradition in the Lutheran tradition, we talk about baptism as a daily dying and rising. Like there might be this one moment that you're initiated into this movement or this Christian tradition, right. With baptism, there might be one moment that you're initiated into an anti-racism movement, but it's the daily work of dying and rising. That really is, is like the journey of baptism. And so that's what this is, this, um, this testimony is about, right? It's this narrative that combines my own theological reflection and my own story with my faith and the way that God was present for me through all of that. I love this concept um, and your story because, I mean, so often in the evangelical church today that we see today, it's all very much like, Black Lives Matter is an evil organization and mm -hmm. like ra why are you fighting for racial justice when we should be fighting to save people for the kingdom of heaven and mm -hmm. like there's this idea that none of this matters racial justice doesn't matter the established systems of justice are good and healthy and we should keep them as opposed to aiming for a more restorative justice system um mm -hmm. How has it been being on the inside of that whole thing? Yeah, I think, you know, 
to your point, there is this thing that happens in, yeah, in, in evangelical churches, but also in mainline churches too, where we have done this huge disservice to the gospel by really hyper-spiritualizing it. Mm. And what I mean by that is that we've really taken these stories that were rooted in real times and real places with real socio-political realities, and we've removed them from those social-political realities and sort of turned it into this like floaty abstract thing. So we say, things like, oh, you know, God sent Jesus to save us from our sin, to save us from sin and death, to save us from hell. And it really feels like it's all about something like really intangible, really just like spiritual in the narrowest sense. But when we look at Jesus's own ministry, and when we look in the stories um, that we find in scripture, we actually see a God who is incredibly interested and invested in the daily lives of people here on earth. Like Jesus became, Jesus didn't come to earth as a spirit, but in a body with flesh and blood and, and feet on the ground and lived in an occupied land under the terror of the Roman empire as an oppressed minority was eventually executed and killed by the state after suffering police brutality. All of those things are right there in scripture. That's not at all my own, like, you know, take on it. And yet so often we read these stories in such a way that it's about this stuff that happens to us after we die and not about our material reality here and now. And so you know, part of the reason perhaps that we have been taught to read scripture in that way is that when we really look at scripture in its political and infleshed reality, we see that there's a lot of similarities, you know, a lot has changed in the past few thousand years, but there's still a lot of similarities, especially when it comes to how power operates. And so there are people in power with a vested interest in us, not looking at scripture this way, not seeing that Jesus was so concerned with people's bodies and people's lives here on earth that he was like feeding and healing, right? Wasn't just saying, don't worry about it. You'll go to heaven someday. He was changing their lives. Now there's people who have a vested interest in keeping us from seeing that Jesus didn't get killed because he was just like, I don't know, too nice or something. What Jesus was doing was such a threat to the established order that the Roman empire executed him, right? It was like mm. threatening to the powers that be threatening to a real political establishment. And so there is a reason that we typically aren't taught to read scripture in that way. And it's because it really benefits the status quo. Yeah. It's interesting because my bless my parents, my parents are immigrants, so mm -hmm. they're not really into, you know, shaking the system because they're trying to establish a life and not mess it up, uh, whatever that means for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And my parents will often tell me like, why do you have to be so like aggressive about what you believe? Why do you have to be so like domineering or whatever? Granted, they don't say that to men who are the same way as me. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I say, like, you're the one that took me to church. You're the one that made me read this Bible. I'm just taking what Jesus did literally. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily believe in the literal biblical, like, whatever, inerrancy of the Bible. But I believe in the literal goodness that was the gospel that was Jesus. Like, this mm -hmm. is, I'm just using his example. He said to feed the hungry, I'm going to feed the hungry. Like, where is there room for misinterpretation there? Where are we disconnecting here, you know? Yeah. That's the part that's always gotten me. Like, 
are you are we not reading the same thing here <laughs> right right and like you said like you know there's so many ways to read scripture and we all make decisions right as we're reading about like what's poetry what's history what's mm-hmm. literal what's metaphorical um and there's so many things that scripture isn't clear about but there are some things that even though you know it's it's this gathered library of different authors written in different times and places across like you know different years even in different languages even though there's so many things that differ, there are some common threads and God seeking liberation for people, justice, wholeness, mm-hmm. those things are consistent, right? So some, there's plenty of stuff that's up for debate and plenty of stuff that changes, you know, culturally or over time or in context, but those core truths that you're talking about, like the justice stuff, it remains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny that it's an insult. Like, Oh, you're just a social justice warrior. And I was like, Yes, of course. Like that's the whole point of fighting for justice. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, talking about just like white moderates and, you know, as somebody that was, um, not raised, but my parents started taking us to church when I was a teenager. And so very much immersed in sort of this white Christianity, um, and then not really even realizing what like evangelical because it was more of like a non-denominational then went to an evangelical college that was also very white and exactly what you said realizing of like thinking that i like was kind of like a moderate like people at my church would think like oh like Spencer's really liberal like she believes women can preach and she doesn't necessarily think that like like gay people are going to hell. Like she's super liberal and I'm, and I'm Ooh, sitting radical. here like, yeah. And then I get to college and I'm like, damn, like I'm a freaking moderate and I'm not doing enough like for people. <laughs> and it's, it's just interesting because like you said of like so many people that I know personally, family and friends that are more moderate conservative, um, you know, they would never say that racial justice doesn't matter. What they would say is that we already got past that, like real, quote unquote, real racism happened like years ago. They're like, you weren't even alive. Like I was alive when this happened mm-hmm. and, I, and they're like, it doesn't happen anymore. It's not, it's not as severe. And I'm like, then you're just not paying attention because it is, it's still as rampant and sometimes even more blatant because people just have no fear these days. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, yeah. and I think it's like, I don't know. It's, it's comforting to hear a story like yours of somebody who was brave enough to get in the trenches, because I think one of my biggest pushbacks for a lot of especially white Christians that are moderate to conservative is they're always like, well, you just haven't done enough study or like, you don't know this, or you don't know that, but they're never willing to like, listen to what others have to say. Like, they don't want to hear like, like someone like you, if you were like, Hey, like read my book and let's have a discussion about it. They'd be like, no, thanks. Because it's just full of like lies or it's full of stuff that we just don't believe in yet. We're forced to listen to what they have to say. And it's like, it's just like, there's very unfair. Like there's very few people that are willing to get in the trenches with people. And I think it's true. Like my, my pastor said last week, like things don't change until you're in a relationship with people. And I think Mm -hmm. you're a great example of that, of you changed your relationship with people and it changed the view of the world for you. Yeah. Yeah. In community organizing, we sort of define, you know, 
the idea of power as the ability to, to change things or to influence things. And we say that power resides in organized people and organized resources. And so really what we're saying is that the building blocks of power, or the building blocks of change, the ingredients of change are our relationships. And that has been really true for me, especially, you know, the more that I learn again about community organizing and, and how we change the world, um, the center for story-based strategy taught me that people's deeply held beliefs are not something that people typically like reason their way into, right? You don't logic your way into how you feel about God, the universe and everything about politics, about your own identity. Those are things that are you believe, or you feel because of stories, right. Of stories that you have and of stories that, that you've heard. And so really, um, one of the most effective ways to, create space for transformation is for us to get to know each other's stories and to be in relationship with one another and, and to hear and see those things for ourselves. I know for myself, I grew up again, I was so fortunate in many ways to go to such a great school. I, I grew up in this great school district and, and we talked about racism, but like you said, Spencer, we really talked about it as if it was something in the past, right? We would learn about you know, maybe Rosa Parks, maybe MLK. And at the end, we'd sort of be like, you know, the work continues today, sort of, but we'd sort of very much still locate what was happening in the past. And so I think a major reason that I didn't realize how entrenched I was in white supremacy and, and how entrenched we are, and I continue to be in white supremacy is because I didn't really know what white supremacy was. I didn't really know what racism was. I'd kind of been told this story that racism is about individual kind of boogeymen, right? Like these monsters who like hated people who were different than them. Right. I, I didn't, I, I was basically taught that racism was about one individual of one race being like mean or having like mean thoughts about an individual of another race. I wasn't taught at all about the ways that racism and white supremacy and other systems of oppression really act as systems are really embedded into institutions, right? That the scripts are so deeply entrenched in our society society that even people who are well-meaning, who just like maybe don't have the analysis, who, you know, whatever are swept up and along these systems and really continue to perpetuate them. And so that was a big reason that like, I don't know, like I would have said racism is bad. I maybe would have even said that I think that on a certain level, systemic racism exists, but I had no idea about its scope because I really, really didn't understand like how, when we say systemic, when we say institutional, like, what does that mean? And when I was able to see and experience that for myself and to hear the stories of people around me who not only, you know, these black folks who are activists, not only had their own lived experiences, but had done all of this like study and reading and analysis as well. It really did change things for me to be able to see things for myself and to be surrounded by folks who could say, yeah, like, I know this seems really shocking to you, Elle, as like a nice white lady. Um, it's not shocking to us. This is our lives. And that made a huge difference. Yeah, it's interesting because I growing up, I grew up in a school system that also taught racism um not perfectly right because well, no i don't think anybody's still doing that mm -hmm. especially not now with critical race theory or whatever mm -hmm. people are mad about <laughs> but i was always looking back on my life as growing up i was always so keenly aware of racism because i existed in systems that were taking advantage of my people yeah my school 72 percent or whatever hispanic 
and then down the line, right? It was very diverse outside of that. Um, the other 25% or whatever was not just all white. We had tons, like it's, it was LA County. So, you know, mm-hmm. as diverse as places can be, um, and I existed, I was going to immigration court with my dad. I was very aware of how racist the immigration system was and how these white kids, well, not kids, these white people from Europe can come here very easily. Whereas Mm -hmm. us from Mexico have a harder time because why? No other reason outside of racism. And then I go to school with Spencer. We go to this Christian college and I remember people looking at me funny because I'm speaking to my mom on the phone in Spanish mm-hmm. in a predominantly Hispanic city in a predominantly Hispanic county um, of Los Angeles. Yeah. And I'm like, you're weird because you don't speak Spanish. So right. don't come at me. And growing into this, like making white friends and kind of existing in a space where it was predominantly white and then thinking like, oh, they just don't get it yet. Like they are coming from like Iowa, Ohio, like all these different Midwestern places or even like central California where they don't have to interact with other races. They don't have to interact with people that are different than them. They don't know any better. And that's hard to think about as like a person of color. Yeah. But it only makes sense, right? Like I don't, before college, I didn't know what a fucking casserole was because I've never had a casserole. Right. Yeah. And like it, I've learned to have so much more grace for the white people (laughs) because I'm just going to assume that they don't know any better. They don't know how to interact with different people that are like me having to dumb down the way I speak or not dumb down, but smart up the way I speak because I have to speak like a white woman to be respected in educational spaces. And then moving into a space where now I'm comfortable talking however it is I normally talk. I've learned to have grace because, well, one, grace is not given to me mm-hmm. in a country where grace is not merit-based. Um, yeah. And I learned like through conversations like one of my best friends at one point we were talking about Japanese internment and he was a history major he was like it was it was a necessary move and I was like um you know that no Japanese American ever came out against the U.S. in the war like it was not like all these conversations that happened and then seeing the progression of people that I love like find out about white supremacy and like through these relationships that I've had with people, so many people have changed their mind and I've never been able to change the mind of a person while fighting, like we've all said. And I think it's the grace part that's been hard for us people of color, like understanding that the majority of the country and the majority of the states are majority white and they just do not know better. How do we then teach people to learn better? And I don't know if the internet is helping. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. What you just said is very gracious, actually. Like, I feel like you are making a lot of space for... um, I'm very angry, but I try. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think like, that's another thing, right? Like, I think you have the right to be angry and that your anger can be very holy and that there's a lot of things that are worth being angry about. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know also like for people of color, 
um, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure, obviously not to come off angry, right. To come off accommodating mm-hmm. because otherwise if you're perceived by, by whiteness as angry, then maybe you're a threat, right. Or you're dismissed or there's all these things. Right. So I can appreciate that too. But I think I heard a lot of grace in what you were saying, because you're really making room for people to grow and transform. And then it's on us as white people to do that, right. To actually grow mm-hmm. and transform, uh, because there's, there's, there's one thing to sort of inherit or, you know, to grow up in a certain ideology or a certain limited point of view. And we all make the choice about whether or not to stay there. And so one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, baptized in tear gas was not to position myself at all as an expert because I'm not an expert. I don't think white people can be experts in the sort of sphere of racial justice, but even if there were experts, like I wouldn't put myself in that category. I wrote this book with the hopes of being a companion on the journey for other white people to say, Mm. hopefully maybe you won't feel so defensive. If you hear me say, I used to think and believe these things. And then here's the experiences I had and here's how I deconstructed that. And here's what I think now, what about you? Right. Not as an expert, not as someone who's like, I don't know, thinking I'm like better than other people, but as someone who has had because of, you know, God's grace and the things that God has done in my life. And because of the patience, uh, that I did not deserve from many people of color around me, particularly black folks, I have had some opportunity for transformation and I continue to be transformed by those relationships. And so my hope, um, which I hear very much in, in what you're saying is like, we are hoping that people can transform, right? We are choosing Mm. to believe that people can transform that if they get the information, they get the resources, they hear the stories that people have the ability to transform. And then of course it's on us white folks to do that, right. To, to seek out that information to when we hear new information or we hear stories or, or experiences that bump up against our own internalized narratives, instead of getting defensive to take a breath and to like, take it in, right. And let these stories affect us and, and to learn and grow. So I think, um, you know, I think like that was like a a major hope for me in going through this, honestly, writing the book, um, when you get around to reading it, I sound like a jerk throughout most of the book. Like I sound like an <laughs> asshole because I'm like, I used to think this, or like I did this and, and, and now I realize, wow, that was white supremacy. Right. But, um, you know, there's like this story about this, uh, direct action. I was at like a March I was at, and I was sort of internally silently critiquing everything that the leaders were doing. Like, Oh, they should really do this. Or they should do this parade march. Or they should really have communicated about this. Or why aren't we clear about this? Right. And now like at the time I was just like, Oh, I'm like a smart person. I know things. Like clearly I know better, right? Looking back, I'm like, wow, me as a white person who did not have a lot of community organizing experience at the time and who definitely did not have experience working with the police and dealing with the police and state violence and who Mm. definitely had not lived in a black body in a white supremacist country like society, 
me thinking that I know better than these black activists, how to run an action is literally me thinking my experiences and thoughts are supreme. That is white supremacy, right? But it's so easy. Like that's the thing white folks do all the time. We see something on the news about state violence, about police brutality. And we sit there on our comfortable couches watching CNN or Fox news. And we say, well, if they would have just complied, well, if they didn't have such an attitude, well, if they would have, you know, respected the officer, right? We sit there and we critique as if we somehow know better than people of color, mm-hmm. how to survive, as if we somehow know better than people of color, how to get free. And none of those things are true. Right. So it's a, the book is a lot of me, like I said, looking like an asshole, but the hope was not to, you know, I don't know, dwell in white guilt or something, but instead to be like, Hey, we can all change our minds. There's space for that. Like, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's like, I think that's good because it gives people, you know, like from my own myself, like as a white woman, there's been times, um, you know, I, I worked at this church that did like racial reconciliation classes and we'd sit and have uncomfortable conversations about, about things that we experienced and like feeling the tension of a lot of like white people being afraid to admit that like we'd thought these things or we'd participated in things because we didn't want to be like, well, you're a bad person when really like what you said, like you have to admit it. You have to admit that you've had these thoughts. You have to admit that you've done these things because the, like the first step is admitting like how cliche is that? But it's the truth because once you can say and be honest with yourself and others, like, like, yeah, like I've crossed the street from a black man walking towards me because I felt afraid. Like once you acknowledge that you can deconstruct of like, why, like what made you feel afraid? What taught you to be afraid of that situation, you know, and moving forward and having those conversations and being held accountable, not just by other white people, but by people of color, because I think that's the part that's uncomfortable of inviting people of color, especially I think black people into your life and tell them that they have authority to hold you accountable. That's scary, but it's needed to move forward. If you really want to live in a kingdom mindset of, we are all moving towards what God wants for us, then we have to enter this uncomfortable space. Yeah. And I think especially in white culture, um, you know, we have been socialized. Part of white culture is to really fear tension, to fear Mm -hmm. conflict, right? That's why we fear direct communication. Can't relate. (laughs) Right. Right. So like, there's this huge, um, you know, maybe unspoken rule that in white culture of like, oh, if we feel discomfort, if we feel tension, we should really shy away from that. We should do anything not to feel uncomfortable because we don't like it. Um, but the fact is that tension can really bring with it a lot of gifts. It can bring us clarity. It can help us move forward. And if we spend all of this time, you know, sort of doing everything that we can to avoid feeling tense, we're really missing out on a a lot of the lessons that we could learn because there is no such thing as transformation without tension, like transformation Mm. necessarily has tension alongside with it. That's just how it is. Yeah. It's hard. I've noticed too, I try to bring everything down to it's like most minute thing. And I've realized that people, one, don't like change. Two, don't like to be uncomfy. That's it. Like they just don't like, or they don't like things that are foreign, which is, I guess, uncomfy. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
gay people. Mm, I can't relate. That's weird. Mm, must be yucky. Don't like it, right? Mm-hmm. The basis for people being homophobic right. or being racist. It's like, oh, I can't relate to their culture. That's weird. I'm uncomfy. They must be bad. Mm-hmm. It's like this association of uncomfortableness with badness and divorcing those two is like the first step to being able to not only have a liberation mindset, but to be a better Christ follower. If you're reading the same book as I am, like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where does it say that you're supposed to be like this comfortable human being, like that you're supposed to live in comfort. Like Jesus wore sandals through the desert. He, (laughs) like it was hot. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He lived a nomadic lifestyle. It doesn't sound like a very comfy life to me. Um, I think, yeah, I don't, I really don't know what to do with the white people. Let's just say that I, as much grace as I have, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame you. Like I don't always know what to do with the white people and I am white people. So, you know, but, um, right. And, and I say that not to like distance myself. I think another thing that white people do myself included this, this pitfall that is really easy to fall into is really try to sort or distance ourselves. Like, well, I'm the mm-hmm. good white person, yeah. right? Oh, I'm not the conservative white person. I'm not like those white people. Right. I'm a good white person. Guilty. Um, yeah, I totally do that. I totally do that. And so I say that sort of like, I don't know what to do with white people. And I am white people not to be like, Oh yes. Like I can't even handle white people. Cause I'm really not like them. Right. Like I'm not bad. Right. Like I'm a good white person. Right. Not to say that, but to say actually like, um, you know, if you're, if we're thinking about scripture and Paul talks about like, I do the thing I hate, right. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And I just get trapped in this. And, and if that's how, one of the ways that we talk about sin, or we talk about the ways that we cause harm to one another and honestly to our own souls, like that is part of it, right. Being a white person or, or I imagine being part of any sort of like dominant group in society. I imagine it's this Mm -hmm. way for men or for straight people or, or whatever, right. Able-bodied people, Sometimes it's like, even as we are trying so hard to participate in our collective liberation and run in the opposite direction from all of the false lies of things like white supremacy and and these other systems, it's a trap, right? Like it's so, it's so hard to escape. And even, even those of us who like dedicate our lives to that, there are parts of us that, that just fall into those things. And so when I say, I don't know what to do with white people and I am white people, I'm like, yeah, even me, right? Like when I was writing this book, um, I was really aware of my own fragility because like I said, I was really talking about a lot of the mistakes that I'd made and, and continue to make and the things I continue to fall into. And I was, I'm embarrassed. Right. And I'm, I'm writing this and I just felt really vulnerable and embarrassed because I'm like, Oh man, like they're going to know I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I'm not one of the good ones or something. Right. Like, like Mm -hmm. these, these lies that we tell ourselves. Um, and so it was, it was, it was uncomfy for me to be like, yeah, like these are things that I have to reckon with and be accountable to you. And some of the things like a major part of accountability is telling the truth. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, just coming face to face constantly with my own fragility and seeing like the way that continues to affect me, even as I'm writing a book about being transformed. Right. It's just, it's, it's there. I love the vision of like being baptized in tear gas Mm -hmm. because it's not like I'm baptized and now I know like baptism, like you said, is not like a one-time thing. It's like a continual, like, but it's also 
like you were touching on, like, you don't have to be an expert in Christianity to be baptized. You don't have to have the whole God thing figured out to be baptized. You don't have to have the whole liberation mindset figured out to be baptized and to be renewed and to change your mind. It could be a slow process. It can be painstaking and uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. That means that you're doing it right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know for myself too, like, um, so, you know, I I was a white moderate and then I I was sort of in this place where I was like, yes, racism's real. Yes. There's racism in our criminal justice system, but it can be reformed. Like it can be saved. Right. I was like kind of in that place for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't become an abolitionist overnight Um, although, you know, like maybe it happened at a very accelerated rate because of some of the things I was seeing and experiencing. But one thing I always tell people is I became an abolitionist before I actually knew that much about abolition, not because I suddenly had like this blueprint about how it all would work, but because I became so clear that what we were doing now was not working, that reforms were not working, that our carceral system, our criminal punishment system as Mm -hmm. is was not working. So I became an abolitionist first, not because I had this like vision for a future without prisons and policing, but first, because like that would come later, right. That would come with more study, more, more conversations. Mm -hmm. I became an abolitionist first because I was not because I was really saying yes to something else, a different model, but because I was so clear about my no to this model. Um, and that, that, made space later for the yes to something different, right? They, mm. The more that I was exposed to it and able to learn. But at first, like, so I tell people, like a lot of times people are like, oh yes, like I know this isn't working. Like police brutality is real, but like, oh, I don't know, abolition. It just seems so hard to understand. It's like, yeah, you don't mm-hmm. actually, you individual person don't have to have all of the answers about how that would work right now to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to think about trying to imagine that world and work towards it. Like we can figure that out together as we go. And there are so many models and so many experts who've been having these conversations for decades. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, so when you're, you know, you're talking about the events of Ferguson and things like that. Um, were you already a mother at that point or did you become a mother after? Like, how did that impact your journey as well of being a mother to black children? Yeah. So I, um, met my daughters in Sierra Leone when I was there on a peace and justice internship. And so I had known them for, about, um, four and a half years. And one of my daughters had been home in the United States with me for just over a year when Michael Brown was killed. And so, you know, I, I had, again, like I kind of became a mom in a less maybe quote unquote traditional route, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I had done a lot of this research. I had started to build those relationships and seek out those perspectives. Right. I was like, I'm going to be a mom to black kids. I need to know what that means. And don't get me wrong. There are plenty of white folks, um, you know, white moms of black kids or, you know, white folks who date or marry or have relationships with people of color that like, don't believe in racism and don't care about mm-hmm. this. And, um, yes. and it's really common even to just sort of like use our children as props or an excuse to say, look, I couldn't possibly be racist. So I wouldn't say necessarily that becoming a mom to black children was like the secret ingredient, but what it did for me, because I love these children so much, I was like, I want to be the best mom I can. And I started to look for more information, which means I started to seek out black voices. Right. And I started to 
do that sort of in person and in relationships and in, in the spaces I was occupying, but also in books. And the more I kept reading, my world kept being opened and opened and opened further and further. And I was reading fiction, but I was reading nonfiction. I was having conversations. And so that was a big part of it. Um, and then when Michael Brown was murdered, um, one of my daughters was here. And so, uh, here in the United States with me. And so she came to a lot of the protests with me, um, mostly the ones during the day at night was when the police were particularly unpredictable, predict pr particularly violent, like lots of tear gas, sound cannons, rubber bullets and stuff. But, mm -hmm. um, she did come to a, a lot of protests with me. There's a picture of her leading a march on the front of the New York times from August, 2015, where she's like leading Cornell West in a march and some other like Brie Newsome and some other like big time activists. And she's right up there in the front with her friend Kenna leading it. So my daughter, it was, is my daughter, daughter, her name is Alice she was there with me for a lot of it. And I think one of the major impacts that had on me was that when I would go home and tuck her in at night and like look into her eyes, I had to reckon with the world she was waking up in tomorrow. And I had to have the fear that black mothers for generations have had about you know, is she going to be safe? Is she going to be free? Is she going to be okay? And, um, that did, it made a big difference to me, right. It made a big difference to me also to see her in the midst of these other black activists, many whom, some of whom were elders, some of whom were young adults to surround her and the way that that affected her sense of identity and her confidence and her, um, just like ability to claim her own voice made it even more clear to me. And so I would say, yeah, I mean, like becoming a mother of black children was hugely important to me. And my hope is that, you know, not everyone is going to be, not all white people are going to be parents to kids of color and, you know, maybe shouldn't necessarily, like there's a lot of ethical concerns that we can mm -hmm. talk about another time with that. But my hope is I, I think most of us, some of us who are parents, some of us who aren't, we all have children in our lives that we love, that we look at them and we are changed because of our relationship with them. We worry about the world that they're growing up in. Our own goals for the future are shaped by our goals for them. Our hopes and our fears are about our fears for them. And my hope is that, you know, we can think about also the way that God is a parent and the way that God feels about us this way. And that God looks at God's own children here on earth, particularly those who are marginalized, particularly those who are vulnerable, who are oppressed, particularly, you know, God's black, brown, indigenous children of color. And God has those same hopes and fears for God's own children. And those of us who claim to follow God and who want to be you know, people after God's own heart, we should structure our reactions accordingly. And we should structure our communities and society accordingly to really follow after God's heart and dreams that all people, all of God's children, especially the most marginalized would be safe, but also would be free. Mm. Heck yeah. And on that note, took us to church, man. <laughs> no. Wow. Well, we've loved having you, Elle. Wow. We, we're going to have to have you back to talk about mm, all the other things that you know. <laughs> I would love that. You're I like think a you genius. all are great. Oh my gosh. That's not at all true, but thank you so much. It's been so great being here. Yeah. Loved having you. Tell the people where they can get more of you. 
Yeah. So you can order my book, Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist. It is available pretty much anywhere that you would buy books. You can get it directly from the publisher, which is Broadleaf Books. Or if you buy your books on Barnes and Noble, Target Online, Amazon, Kindle, Google Play, you can buy it there. You can also buy it on IndieBound. And I always try to encourage people to buy um, from their independent bookstores if they can. So mm-hmm. it is on IndieBound. And um, even better if you can find a black owned bookstore, right? Um, you can also find me on my website, which is ldowd.com. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash ministry or on TikTok at ministry, Or you can find me on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at HowNowBrownDowd. My maiden name before I got married was Brown. So like Brown Dowd. So how now Brown Dowd. Hey, that's sick. <laughs> we love it we love tiktok tiktok is how we found l so praise god for crazy social media Mm -hmm. (laughs) my tiktok is like so corny my so you know i have teenagers right it's so corny (laughs) so i have teenagers and they're like mom you can't dance on tiktok it's too embarrassing so i have like i think like two i got like permission to post that included dancing but they're like this is too corny mom like no it's too embarrassing but i was like listen my dear children that I love so much. It's literally like church humor, TikTok. It's going to be corny. Like it's yep. ministry TikTok. Yes. It's just corny. So if you like, like cheesy progressive church humor, a lot of it's very gay, bisexual. A lot of it is like about abolition and some of the other things we talked about, you know, here. Yeah. TikTok, L Dowd yeah. Ministry. So it's it's for our people by our people. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> Queer liberationists, a little bit corny. Church. Yes. yes. Welcome That's to the club, everybody. Us. <laughs> <laughs> well, we guys, uh, you can find us on Instagram uh, at Speaking in Church. You can find Josie at Josie Takes the World. You can find me at Spence Rose. Um, yeah, if you want to email us, uh, speaking in church at gmail.com. If you want to be on the pod, we're still waiting on that lone conservative to come fight Josie. That's fine. <laughs> oh, wait, it's totally cool. Um, anyways, with that being said, as always, stay woke or get woke. Jesus loves you. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.